It's Friday 23rd of June, and this is your Capital Economics Weekly Briefing. I'm David Wilder, coming up an exclusive clip from our client briefing all about what the Bank of England's 50 basis point hike means for the UK economy and markets. But first, I'm joined again by Neil Shearing, our group chief economist. Hi, Neil. Hi, David. As I say, we'll be hearing from our colleagues in a bit about the recessionary impact of the bank's June meeting. But I was hoping we could start with you putting that decision, that, that 50 basis point hike decision, into a global context. You've written and spoken extensively about how this is a weird cycle of extremes, economic extremes, but also policy extremes. So with that in mind, is the UK an outlier here? I think there's something to that. The UK is starting to look like something of an outlier. So obviously earlier in the cycle, all advanced economies experienced this big surge in inflation. But it started to fall back earlier in the US. And importantly, core inflation is now on a downward track in the US and in the Eurozone, albeit in the case of the latter, helped by subsidized transport tickets in Germany. In the UK, however, Core inflation, so that strips out food and energy, which is pretty volatile. It's about prices of goods and services that are more linked to underlying macro conditions. Core inflation is now at a 31-year high, we learned over the past week. That, that was data for, for May. And I think that is what spooked the Bank of England and led them to, to hike interest rates by 50 basis points at the, at the MPC meeting on Thursday of the past week. So the UK does appear to be something of an outlier, or starting to look like something of an outlier, and it has to do with particularly the tightness of the labour market. I think wage growth in the UK is still in the wrong direction. It's faster than in, in any other developed market at the moment. And that's why you're getting this aggressive policy response. So coming up, as I say, a clip from our colleagues post Bank of England briefing. They discuss in that their argument that the UK needs a recession to get inflation under control, to, to tackle that labour market tightness that you talk about. What's the state of play regarding recession and, and recession risk in, in these other advanced economies? What are the latest data telling us? Well, there is some signs of softness. So as we're speaking on Friday morning in London, we've just had the flash PMIs for, for June. The flash PMIs for the UK, they've come off a bit. In the Eurozone, they've come off a bit too. So they're just about above the 50 mark, the, the composite PMI that is supposed to separate expansion from contraction. It's basically consistent with the Eurozone economy stagnating. And of course, the Eurozone itself is in a technical recession defined by two successive quarters of, of negative output, the mildest of recessions so far. I'm not sure it quite qualifies as a recession, but anyway, technical definition of recession met. So there is some signs that Europe in particular, I, th I would categorize the economy there as stagnating rather than necessarily being in a recession, but certainly extremely weak. In the US, there's fewer signs so far of the economy actually being in recession. Labor market's holding up. Manufacturing's extremely weak and probably in recession, but the services sector doing okay. We updated our recession tracker for the US, however, over the past week, and that is still pointing to a strong likelihood of the US being in recession six months from now. So Warning signs still flashing red on recession in the US, even though the US is not yet in recession, in our judgment. And back on central banks, how central banks are managing this cycle, we have also had rate hikes in the past week from, from Norges Bank in Norway, from Switzerland's S&B, even as emerging market central banks from Brazil to the Czech Republic to Indonesia. They've all held interest rates steady ahead of rate cuts that we're expecting before the end of this year 
quite a contrast there, isn't there? What's the significance of it? I think it's really significant. So one of the kind of truisms of macro investing is that EM central banks follow the Fed. So the Fed leads global tightening and then loosening cycles. And, and really, if you're an emerging market, you just have to follow the Fed. When the Fed hikes, you have to hike. And when the Fed cuts, you can finally cut. However, if you look at what's happened in this cycle, we've talked, haven't we, about how this cycle is extremely unusual in certain respects. And one of the ways that it is unusual is that EM central banks have actually led in this tightening cycle. They were much sooner to start tightening policy. And as a result, we're starting to see the first signs of loosening come in emerging markets too. So the National Bank of Hungary cut interest rates over the past week. Brazil's central bank appears to be laying the groundwork for rate cuts perhaps as soon as September. And so we're starting to get this situation where EM central banks, having led in the tightening phase of the cycle, appear to be leading in the loosening phase and easing phase of this cycle. So it's upturned this kind of truism that, that EMs have to follow the Fed. Actually, is EM central banks that are leading this time around. There are, of course, outliers in, in EMs as well. Turkey hikes 650 basis points, same day as the Bank of England did their 50 basis point move. CBRT so behind the curve that that was actually considered a disappointment to, to our own Liam Peach. And then China, of course, cutting the loan prime rates, but, but perhaps worried more about deflation and giving the post-COVID recovery there a boost. But I wanted to stay on China because it has been an interesting week there, even beyond what's happening on the monetary policy front. U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken meeting Xi Jinping in Beijing. A lot of fanfare about U.S.-China relations being back on track. Then headlines almost a day after with the Chinese foreign ministry taking umbrage about comments from Joe Biden that suggest Xi Jinping is a dictator. From an investor point of view, what are we meant to make of this? What's the big picture here? Well, I think it's pretty clear that both sides, Beijing and Washington, are trying to get relations back on track after that incident over the spy balloon, get relationships onto a more even keel. At the same time, a number of economists and analysts have pointed to evidence that global trade in goods and services rose to a record high as a share of world GDP in 2022 as evidence of the fact that fracturing is a kind of myth rather than a reality that the world is not deglobalizing. Now, I think there's a couple of important points to make in response to this. The first, with respect to that data on trade, is that we never really thought that fracturing between the US and China was the same thing as deglobalization. There's no good geopolitical reason to stop importing toys and furniture and so on and so forth from China if you're the US. So we never thought that the, the fracturing of the US-China relationship was going to manifest itself in a large downward shift in global trade. Yes, trade in certain sectors, particularly technology and biotech and pharma and so on, will be affected, but the bulk probably won't. So I don't think we can read too much into those trade figures and, and, and infer too much from those. What about the kind of high-level politics here? Well, clearly, as I say, it's an attempt on both sides to get the US-China relationship back on track. But I think the, the fundamental issue is that the underlying drivers of this fracturing between the US and China relationship, they, they've not gone away. The issue, as we've discussed on this podcast before, is that China has emerged as a strategic rival to the US, and that is going to lead to strains in the relationship, particularly as we enter the election cycle in the US. So I don't think the underlying drivers of fracturing have gone away. And if you look at the reality for multinational companies, fracturing is a real and present issue. So 
just over the past week, we've had AstraZeneca say that it's planning or considering hiving off its China unit and listing it separately in Hong Kong. Other companies like Sequoia Capital have, have considered doing similar things. So yes, there's some positive noises from kind of high level officials and at a governmental level, but fracturing is a kind of reality for multinationals already. And the underlying issues have not really gone away. So I think it's going to be an issue that is with us for, for many years to come and will be the defining issue for global policymakers over the coming decade. That was Neil Shearing on US-China relations, global economic fracturing, and a busy and contrasting week in central bank decision-making. Now, that Bank of England hike. A 50 basis point move was a very minority view in the market heading into the decision, but our UK team were expecting it after the shocking May CPI data. Paul Dales, who leads the team, and Deputy Chief UK Economist Ruth Gregory were joined by Adam Hoyes from our markets team and Andrew Wishart, who leads our UK housing research, shortly after the MPC statement was released on Thursday to brief clients in a drop-in, one of our short-form webinars, on what all of this means for the UK economy, for UK financial markets, and for the UK housing market. Here's a clip from that briefing. You can watch the full version on our website, and I'll link to it in the podcast notes. But this clip starts with Ruth and Paul discussing the risks to our forecast that bank rate will peak at 5.25%. I think the risk is that perhaps the bank needs to raise rates further than we expect to get inflation back down, meaning that the chances of a bigger recession are growing. And can you explain why we think that recession is actually necessary and part of our forecast and our story? Yeah, so unlike I think most forecasters, we believe a period of economic weakness is required to get wage growth and core CPI inflation back down to rates consistent with the 2% inflation target. I guess some of the falls in wage growth and CPI inflation will probably happen quite naturally and without any economic pain. So, for example, a further fall in CPI inflation due to lower energy prices and lower food inflation will shrink that part of wage growth that's been driven by higher inflation and higher inflation expectations of employees and employers. But our view really is that to get wage growth and core inflation down to levels consistent with the 2% target, the Bank of England needs to keep rates high to loosen the labour market by enough to weaken wage growth by enough and to stamp down on price and wage expectations. And it, that could be achieved by GDP growth at growing at a slower rate than its potential for a prolonged period rather than a recession. But I think it would be very rare for rates to rise so far and so fast without triggering a recession. So uh, while the Bank of England Governor Andrew Bailey did say that the bank isn't seeking to participate a recession, our hunch is still that a recession is likely and necessary to bring inflation back down to the 2% target. Yes, that's interesting. So Ruth's essentially laid out that we think interest rates are going to go a bit higher. Probably the risks in the near term are certainly on the upside and that interest rates are probably going to have to stay a reasonably high level for all of this year and a good chunk of next year. Further ahead in late 2024 and 2025, we do think that if indeed there is a recession, inflation comes down, interest rates will have to fall a bit sharper than most people are expecting. But can you elaborate on that, Adam, what that means for our forecast for gilt yields? Yeah, so so as you said, we're fairly far below what investors think on, on bank rate out in the, further in the future. So our forecast is for, is for gilt yields to fall. We have the 10-year yield at 4% at the end of 2023, and we've got it down at 3.25% by the end of next year. For context, it's around 4.4% at the minute. And we think that investors could sort of come around to our 
to our view on bank rate by the end of this year, which is what's really driving that first bit of the decline. I mean, in terms of risks to, to that to that forecast, I think it's probably fair to say that they're, they're quite balanced. Obviously, if we see rates get to where investors expect right now, or even somewhere between where we think and where investors expect, we could see yields in the short term of the curve rise a little bit. But even if they do go higher, we, I think we could just see a, a sort of continuation of what we've seen today, which is the yields at the longer end of the curve at the 10-year point, for example, falling back a little as investors anticipate more aggressive cuts further down the line. And Andrew, this all feeds very obviously into the housing market via mortgage rates. There's been huge amounts of interest in that over the last couple of weeks. How do the, today's events change your view on what's going to happen to mortgage rates? So I think the decision itself today doesn't change things a great deal, actually. It's the increase in swap rates over the past sort of two and a half months that has, has been the main driver of the mortgage rate increases we're seeing already. So lenders, basically, their funding cost is pretty much set by swap rates. And then they add a margin to that to sort of set the, the mortgage rates on fixed fixed mortgages. And as we've sort of written about, their margins look quite narrow in the period when mortgage rates came down after the autumn. So we were always worried about this risk of inflation proving more consistent rate expectations going higher. And that's obviously been the case. At the moment, it, we think that mortgage rates probably moving to around 6% is, is likely. That's quite a high number relative to recent past anyway. I know earlier this week you wrote a very detailed document on the UK housing service about what that would do to homeowners. Can you elaborate a bit on that and, and tell us what kind of influence mortgage rates of 6% is going to have to people in the real world? Yeah, so I think there's the, I'll first go over the impact of the people thinking about buying and, and prices and then what's happening to existing mortgage borrowers. So typically the mortgage rates not only set the cost of borrowing, but also the amount that people can borrow for a, for a given monthly payment. So higher mortgage rates basically are reducing the mortgage size that people could take out and the average mortgage approval has already dropped by 10%. This further increase in mortgage rates is going to reduce it further and basically mean that people can't really afford current health prices because they simply can't borrow enough to meet current sellers' expectations for prices. So we think that that means that price falls are going to resume after a plateau in the early part of the year. So we think that we're expecting another 8% drop in prices on top of the 4% we've seen since last summer. Of course, this makes the impact on existing homeowners much more severe. And I think the key point here is that it's going to be extremely uneven. So, you know, when there's a cohort of buyers that took out a two-year fix in 2021, potentially already stretched themselves quite far in terms of having quite a long term, those of maybe 40 years, in that case, people could see their mortgage payment double when it comes to refinance this year. But, it, you know, it just by chance, if you chose a five-year fix instead, you pretty much sit out this rate hike cycle. And then, of course, you've got the fact that you know, most borrowers who are further down the line paid off more of their mortgage and see much more smaller increases in costs. So it's a very different environment now to where we had variable mortgage rates. And it'll be interesting to see whether the transmission of policy where some households get squeezed really hard and others have a much more manageable increase makes a difference to the impact of this rise in mortgage rates and and the reduced spending it, it, it forces on back into the economy. Yeah, but that takes us sort of right back to the beginning of how high interest rates need to go. Ruth, can you develop this by perhaps talking about how you think the influences Andrews be discussing higher borrowing costs is going to influence the real economy and also perhaps about the, the lags of interest rates where, you know, it is taking longer 
than people have thought and the effects of interest rates so far haven't been as big, even though we're seeing all these scary stories and reports of people really suffering from higher mortgage rates. Yeah, as Andrew said, you know, as households gradually refinance at higher rates, you know, we, we do expect higher interest rates to soon bite a bit harder and that the drag on consumer spending will grow. We estimate that around 40% of the drag from higher interest rates has already been felt, but that does mean that 60% of the drag on economic activity is yet to come. So there's still quite a lot in the pipeline. And in, in, and in terms of how our estimates on sort of the share of income that household sector is devoting to interest payments, we think that that will rise from 3.7% in Q4 to a peak of around 5.5%. And obviously our forecast for house prices to fall and, and by around 12% peak to trough, that will weigh on consumer confidence and, and in turn on consumer spending. So in terms of our forecast, we've, we've penciled in a peak to trough fall in real consumer spending of around 0.5% and a peak to trough fall in real GDP of 0.5%. So that recession coming later this year. It's, well, it's all sounding a bit gloomy, isn't it? I mean, there are other scenarios out there. One question has raised that. Is, you know, is, is there a positive scenario out there? I think there is. I mean, we don't know for sure what's going to happen. And the positive scenario is that instead of reducing inflation by bearing down on demand, which you can think of as a sort of a painful way to get inflation down, is that inflation disappears because perhaps there's an increase in supply. So that might be an increase in the number of available workers, either through more strong net inward migration or perhaps a reduction in those people who are unable to work because they're ill. Now, that could be a really big development and suddenly that inflationary pressure in the labor market could dissipate and inflation could come down without having to generate too much economic pain. I personally think that you know that would be the best way out and the government is trying to pull some levers to make that happen but I think it's probably the least likely way out and those supply side developments really tend to take a long time. So I think the most likely scenario is where there has to be some economic pain to get inflation back down. That was Paul Dales, Ruth Gregory, Adam Hoyes and Andrew Wishart on a grim outlook for the UK. The whole briefing includes discussion about the impact on housing construction and why UK inflation is higher than Europe's. You can find it, along with all our coverage, on our website, capitaleconomics.com. And for complete access to all our macro and market insight, as well as powerful data and charting tools, check out CE Advance, our premium platform. Subscribe to the weekly briefing wherever you get your podcasts from. But until next time, goodbye. Whilst this podcast is provided with all reasonable skill and care, it comprises the subjective views of our economists. Furthermore, these views are not opinions, nor do they constitute investment or financial advice, or are they guarantees or reassurances to the expected results of any investment products or outcome. You should seek your own specific advice in relation to questions you may have. We will have no liability to you in relation to this podcast whatsoever.